this morning, you are joining the tab at kind of a unique point, a unique crossroads in what God is doing among us, because a few weeks ago, we had our soft launch of the Franklin Avenue worship location, which is going on right now simultaneous to this worship gathering. And um, I think that in this, God is building into us the capacities They're going to be so important for the future things that God has called us to. And so uh, we have said in recent months that um, God has, we we feel like God has given us these words of multiplication, regionalization, and generational transfer. And all of those things require us uh, to learn to relate to each other in new ways. And it's taking us down an unconventional path, but I think one Um, that we're already seeing in the last few weeks is bearing fruit. And I'll get to some of what I mean as we look at this passage this morning. But uh, there's a guy who's written some books, a missiologist named Leonard Sweet. I've gotten to spend a little bit of time with him. And uh, I think he is quoting somebody else when he points out that three of the major idolatries Um, of the modern experience have to do with our quest for transcendence. That is, we desire a transcendent experience, an experience that makes us feel like we're lifted out of ourselves and that we experience something bigger than ourselves. And modern society has had its ways of offering to us options to feel that. So there's some authors who have noted that uh, the three things that are often held out to us are drugs, sex, and crowds. So drugs, obviously, right? Part of the pool is the escape, is the sense of being lifted out of oneself, right? To uh, some kind of greater reality. Of course, it's always left wanting, right? Because we topple off of that, right? And things become worse and worse, and there's impacts on our relationships and our lives, Sex is one of those experiences that, although created by God, uh, itself can become an idolatry where we seek this kind of ecstatic experience that lifts us out of ourselves. Of course, it can, in and of itself, become addicting. Uh, But then there's something about the crowd, right? Um, I was at a Christian conference uh, just like a week and a half ago. Can I tell you something? I, I don't know if you've ever been to a Christian conference. I haven't been to one in forever. Aside from meetings associated with the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, I just haven't been a conference goer. And so I have not been to these big Christian conferences in like over a decade. But I was at this conference, uh, and there's like 6,000 people in one of the largest churches in the United States, and we're worshiping together. And There is something just about that experience. It's not that it's all bad, but there is something about that experience that can feel transcendent, right? To hear all those voices, to have an understanding that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but here's Leonard Sweet's observation, that the American church largely has preached against drugs and sex as substitutes, as false substitutes for this experience of transcendence. But the crowds... Uh, we have fallen for that one headlong, right? We love the strength that a crowd makes us feel. We love the energy that a crowd 
makes us feel. And it's interesting because Jesus himself sometimes attracted crowds. Um, It's not that crowds are inherently bad. By the way, sex is not inherently bad, right? This is the territory of idolatry is that even good things can become idolatrous, right? But Jesus had an interesting relationship with the crowds, didn't he? Because sometimes he drew them and sometimes Jesus did things purposefully to make sure that it wasn't all about a crowd and that it wasn't just a popularity contest and a crowd gathering. And, and I would say in the American church, if a crowd has started to gather in a sanctuary like this or in a church, we assume that that must be God, that something is happening. Jesus did not always assume that something good was happening just because a crowd was gathering. So crowds aren't bad. In two weeks, uh, I'm sure we will pack this place out a little bit more as we recombine together. And there is a different energy that comes with a bigger group of people. And it is great to know that we are part of something bigger. And we'll do it again on Easter. And all of that is so good and so exciting. It also can't be what we are about as a church, right? We're preaching this series, Family on Mission, um, because we're not just saying that this is theory, that like, that like, you know, we're all just part of the family of God if you're baptized in water. It's, it's not just a theory. What we are saying when we say family on mission and we, we get that language from the scriptures, we're saying that we actually act like a family. That this is what the church is. And here's what I know about that 6,000 person gathering that I was in a couple weeks ago. There was a lot, oh, there was wonderful music and great preaching and lots of good stuff about it. Um, but when there's 6,000 people in a room, you might get a feeling of transcendence. I don't know how you act like a family. Do you? Because family stuff happens in the nexus of relationships, right? In us knowing each other. In us understanding and seeing how God is working in the other person. Around tables and meals and And so I asked a question last week as we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and we're going to talk some more about spiritual gifts here in just a moment um, from Romans and 1 Peter. But I asked the question, what forms of church help us best express what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says that the grace that Jesus has given us, has been given to an interdependent set of relationships called the church. That If you're looking for where Jesus left his grace, that's where he left it, is in an interdependent, interlocking set of relationships, a family called the church. He didn't leave it just to one person. He didn't leave it just to an elite class of disciples. He left it to a family And we said last week, that family, because it's so interconnected, it's just the reality of what that family is in the grace of Jesus, that we can't exclude people from that family. We can't say, we don't need you, just because we don't like you or something. Uh, And we also um, can't opt out. We can't say that I'm not part of the family, because that's that's where Jesus left his grace. It's not just the individuals, but to a family. So you might be annoyed at the family, you might like, and that happens in families. We all get annoyed at our families, right? Uh, You might get irritated with the family, but you're part of the family, right? 
because that's where Jesus puts you. Well, today we're going to continue looking at what it means for us to be this interdependent family. And to do that, we're going to begin by looking in Romans chapter 12. Now, let me set this up for you by talking a little bit about what we mean when we talk about spiritual gifts. So you saw a training is coming up soon on spiritual gifts. If you want to explore this further, that'd be a great space for you to show up and to ask the question, how does your personality, your culture, interact with the grace of God, the particular manifestation of the grace of Jesus that has been put on your life for the family and for the world? Um, We want to be helpful to you in your discovery of the particular kind of grace that's been given to you uh, by Jesus because you have, you have a role to play. Um, but when we talk about spiritual gifts in the New Testament, we're really thinking about a few passages um, where Paul, especially, although we're going to look at Peter today, um, teaches on these gifts. And there's three different kinds of sets of gifts. Um, and it's the last one that we're going to be teaching on today. So the first are what we call the leadership gifts. Sometimes around here at the tab or in our network, you'll hear us refer to this as the fivefold. These gifts are described in the book of Ephesians, and we call them the fivefold because there's five kinds of people that uh, Paul references, apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, and evangelists. Um, and all of these play a role, particularly of leadership and equipping in the church, and we believe that all of those gifts are still alive today, that all of those gifts, apostolic gifts, prophetic gifts, evangelistic gifts, shepherding gifts, teaching gifts, are still operating and alive today. But the way Paul talks about those gifts in Ephesians is that the gift is actually the person himself or herself to the church. So it says that God gave apostles, God gave prophets, God gave evangelists, teachers. God's grace works in people in particular ways that the gift is actually the person to the church. Um, And this is so, it's not what I'm preaching on today at all, but it is so key to our understanding of how the family works on mission, so key to our understanding here at the tab about how leadership works understanding our fivefold gifts, these in, this interdependent way of leadership is so key to our understanding that we've had to dive into this a lot um, over the years, and you'll see trainings pop up about this. But I can tell you this, it's God's design for the church for these five gifts to be working in unity together. And when they are, when there is a team where these five kinds of people, in our experience, at least four out of the five, are working together in harmony, you will see a multiplication of mission happen in a region. It happens all over the world. There's people who study this all around the world. Um, there's places where there might be some small expression of mission, but it's not until these five gifts are working together in a synergistic way that we see an explosion of multiplication happen. And some of what we have seen in multiplication out of the tab and out of the network in recent years happened because these five gifts are working together really well in our context. So those are the leadership gifts. The next set are the manifestation gifts. Um, And these are the gifts that we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. And these are the gifts that we experience as we surrender to what God is doing in a moment. So I said this last week, but the context of 1 Corinthians 12 is that God's people are gathered, probably not in a gathering like this, more like a house, 
around the table, but they're gathered together as the family. They begin to experience Jesus, and Jesus shows up in the room in these really tangible, manifested ways. So how does that happen? Well, one person speaks in tongues, a language that they don't know, and another person interprets that. And another person, uh, a miracle flows through them of healing for someone, and someone has a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. And that collective experience in that gathering is the manifestation of Jesus in that group of people. It's something we experience all the time surrounding the tab, these gifts Um, showing up. But we say that we surrender to it in a moment because these gifts can stick with us and it's not uncommon for them to. But I've actually seen people manifest one of these gifts only once. I know people who spoke in tongues exactly one time. And it was in a moment when God was using them for that purpose. And they surrendered to what God was doing, delivered something in a language they didn't know it was interpreted. There's other people it kind of sticks with them. But the point is that Jesus is manifesting in these ways. What we're going to talk about today is what, very simply and foundationally, we just call the gifts of grace. And there's two categories that I'll unfold for you, serving gifts and speaking gifts. And we believe, because of the way Paul talks about these gifts in Romans and the way Peter talks about these gifts in 1 Peter, that every believer, everyone who's received the Holy Spirit, has at least one of these gifts. In our experience, most people have more than one. Um, but these are the particular graces that God has given to the church. So if you're in the family, you got a gift. You might not know what it is, but you don't have to question that his grace is manifesting in you in some kind of particular way. So with that being said, let's talk about these gifts of grace that have everything to do with what it means to be a family in Romans 12. And I think I have beginning in verse 4 up on the screen. Oh, that reference is wrong. No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, it's just, it starts at verse 6, and I'm going to start us at verse 3. Okay, so just listen if you're not turned there. This is what Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has just distributed to each of you. Now, if I can just point out something about context here. Paul is writing to Christians who are at the center of the Roman Empire's influence and power. And this is an empire that has made its life off of boasting, that has secured its borders by boasting about conquest, that is sure that the gods and the goddesses are on the side of the empire, right? And it's in this context that Paul writes to this family And notice how empire is set up so differently than the kingdom of God because empire puts all of its hope in who? An emperor, a king, right? Um, This powerful person who is proof that the gods sanction this, that is proof that this nation is powerful and strong, right? That's the narrative of empire. In the kingdom of God, There's just kind of this imperfect, diverse, dispersed family of interdependent relationships called the church. Because there's only one king in the kingdom, and it's Jesus, right? 
So what Jesus left behind is this interdependence of relationships. So in this empire that boasts all the time, Paul writes them and says, you, family of God, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought because he knows what they're seeing. He knows that in the Roman Empire, it is virtuous to boast, that it feels safer to boast. And he's saying, not with you, though. Don't boast. Don't boast. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And here's verse 6 up on the screen for you. We have different gifts. That word is just grace. We translate it gifts here in the English. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. This is why we think every believer in the body has a gift to each of us. Grace has been given. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. Now let's just stop there for a second. Just that phrase, and we'll talk about the gift of prophecy in just a second. But that phrase, prophesy in accordance with your faith, um, we exercise the grace that has been given to us by faith, by believing in what God has said about us, by believing in the grace that he's given us, by believing in the source of grace, who is Jesus himself. It is faith that allows us to access, believing God in a way that manifests in action is what lets us manifest the gift that has been given to us. And it's interesting that Paul uses this language of to the measure of your faith. What Paul is saying essentially is, it's possible, and it is our journeys, that we grow in these gifts. These gifts come from outside of ourselves. They're not just natural talents and abilities. It's the grace of Jesus that is manifesting in our lives in a supernatural way. Um, But it is possible for us to grow in them. If, If Jesus has given us the gift of prophesying, it is possible to grow in prophecy. How? By growing in our faith. By believing in what Jesus has said more and more about himself and about us, that will lead us to action, to actually prophesying. And as we prophesy, we become stronger and stronger in using that gift. Does that make sense? So don't think that the way the Spirit of God works in us is just by seizing us and making us robots or something. No, the grace of Jesus is cooperating with you. He's inviting you to learn how to steward this thing that he's deposited into you. Now let's keep reading. Verse 7, if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encourage, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is in giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So he lists off these gifts. Now let me show you another passage in 1 Peter. Very interesting because Peter is also writing to Christians who find themselves in the midst of empire, of all this boasting and strength and all the false promises of security and safety that empire provides. Peter is concerned about those themes as well. And it's interesting that gifts come up for him too as he writes this letter to the churches. So 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received. So here's, again, the assumption that you receive something. If you're in the body of Christ, you receive some kind of gift. You've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. 
If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, when we read what first, what's here in First Peter, uh, Peter's words, uh, there are those that have noticed that Peter just kind of mentions two sets of gifts, speaking and serving. And it's interesting that the gifts that Paul mentions in Romans can easily be categorized into those two sets of things, speaking and serving. So we get a sense that this was something that the early church talked about. Uh, We all have gifts. They're speaking gifts, they're serving gifts, and they manifest in different ways. So I have the gifts from Romans up here on the screen for you, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. The speaking gifts being prophecy, teaching, and encouragement, or some translations say exhortation. The serving gifts being service, giving, leadership, and mercy. Now, let's just describe these. And by the way, just in our experience, I think if you're in Jesus, we know from the scriptures that you at least have one of these. In our experience, most people have two or more, and it's very common to kind of have one in each column. Um, But that's just our experience. So speaking gifts, what does the grace of Jesus look like manifested in speaking gifts? First of all, you should know that speaking gifts are not reserved just for people who have microphones and pulpits. It's because families speak to each other. And remember, the context of the early church was not microphones and pulpits and conferences and sermons. It was homes and tables. And so this is what it's being imagined. This is how you talk to each other, right? And the grace of Jesus shows up in your speech in these three ways, prophecy, teaching, and encouragement. The gift of prophecy in this context, it means other things in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. But in this context, we understand the gift of prophecy to be the one who calls the family of God to what God is doing now. Another way, we often think of prophecy as futuristic, but do you know that most prophecy, even in the Old Testament, in the Bible, is not future-oriented? Most, the vast majority of what we call prophecy in the scriptures is actually very present-oriented. It's the prophets among us who are often saying to us, this is what God is saying now. Even as I talk about this, think about people in our church who communicate this way, right? Um, and so they're often calling us to turn to God now, to repent now, Right? to cooperate with what God is doing now. There's often an urgency in their speech. These communicators are often very black and white in the way they think and they communicate. It's clear what God is doing and this is what he's doing now. Teachers, on the other hand, are very different. They tend to be far more detail-oriented. They care very much about the boundaries of Scripture. Um, They're often nuanced thinkers. They can see one angle, but they can see another angle, too right? They love the tensions that are present in the scriptures, often not very black and white thinkers. Um, and they often fold to us a, unfold to us a depth in our understanding of God, particularly from the scriptures. And encouragement or exhortation are the inspiring communicators um, who can inspire particularly to action. Uh, they're the one who's going to come to you and say, no, God loves you. And because he loves you, you should do this. You should step out and do this thing. You should try this thing. You should root it in the truth of who God is and the identity that he has put onto us. They will encourage to action. So I've already said these gifts are not just for pulpits and microphones, but let me give you an example. If three different people were um, 
uh, preaching on the, many of you probably know the scripture passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? Super common uh, scripture passage gets quoted in lots of places. Well, these three gifts would present that passage to you really differently. Um, the prophet might say, for God so loved the world and he loves you right now and the door is open right now for you to come to repentance. This is what God is saying now, right? For God so loved the world. Hold out to you with that urgency, right? The teacher might ask, what does it mean that God so loved the world? And what does that word world mean? And as a matter of fact, there's other scriptures that give us a clue to what that word, world, means. There's other portions of scripture that talk about the ethnic groups of the world and how Jesus is not going to come back until all those ethnic groups have been reached and brought into the family of God. They would take us deeper, right, into the meaning of the passage. And the encourager, I think, would do one of two things. It would either call people to receive this salvation in a really winsome way, right? The doors are open, I encourage you to come forward now, right? It's the encouragers who are good at the altar calls, right? Um, or, or they would encourage action out of the verse, for God so loved the world, let's partner with him in what he's doing. In the neighborhoods, and the nations, you have a role to play, right? Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but do you see some of our leaders in, in this? When they preach, it's why we preach in a team, by the way, because we don't think like one speaking gift is enough for the manifold grace of God, right, that works in a place. Jesus speaks in all these ways. So when Steve preaches in front of you, he preaches like a prophet, right? Very often when Christine preaches, she preaches like a teacher, right? And these all, you know, interplay with each other. And I'm just like all encouragement, you know, inspirer, right? And so you see these different gifts, um, that show up. In, but it's not just for preaching and teaching. This is how we talk to each other around meals and in relation with each other. Next, the serving gifts. The gift of service. Hey, I, we really need to talk about this one at the Gospel tab for a few reasons. Number one, a lot of you have it. And, and you exercise it so well. The people who serve do just that. They just serve without expectation of thank you or reward. You can tell that people have a service gift because they often don't want uh, to be in front of people. And they often don't want uh, to be noticed. Uh, he's not here, so I can say it. <laughs> um, Henry Hart. Some of you know Henry. I went down to the Franklin Avenue service to unlock last Sunday. And when I went down there, he had shoveled that whole block without anybody asking that of him, right? He is an elder at our church, but he has the gift of service, and it manifests all the time behind the scenes, just the grace of Jesus to serve without anybody even, no one called him and asked him to shovel. He saw a need and he filled it, and he wasn't expecting a thank you either. And I want to say, please, with all the authority that I have or whatever, let me, can I just say this to you? Um, in a church that speaks in tongues and prophesies and prays for the sick, the gift of service is the manifested grace of Jesus in our midst. It is as significant 
as someone speaking in tongues or interpreting a tongue or prophesying. Or we see part of Jesus in you when you serve because you do it selflessly and you take the lowest position and you're not asking to be the center of attention. All those things are like Jesus and we need you. And it's in the gift of service. It's kind of wrapped up in it that it doesn't get celebrated a lot. It's kind of how the gift works, actually, right? But I'm celebrating it today. We are so grateful for those of you who bring to us the service of Jesus, this foot-washing Savior. Some of you bring him to us in your service. The gift of giving is very similar in that it prefers to be in the background and that it's rarely looking for public applause, but it is service with material resources, These people often love to share what they have. You can notice them because they love to share their cars and their homes, and they'll give stuff away. Like, you like something of theirs, they'll just give it to you, all right? Um, They see their possessions as belonging to Jesus, right? And so they hold on to things really loosely, and they often are financially very generous as well. Um, We've noticed on the lives of these individuals, there is often a grace for the stewardship of financial resources. They often have an interest in learning how to steward financial resources better. It's something that they've learned and grown in. And for some of them, at least, it's not that everyone with this gift is rich, but there's something in them that God just keeps pouring out more resources onto them because they are the conduits through which he will redistribute resources in the church, right, to meet the needs of the family and to meet the needs of the community. Leadership, how can you tell that someone has this gifting? Is it because they aspire to leadership? Or is it because they have a position? No, here's how you can tell who has the grace. In other words, this otherworldly, supernaturally manifesting grace for leadership. Here's how you can tell. Very often, they don't want to be the ones leading, but everybody follows them in whatever environment they step into with or without position, with or without title. They're often not looking for it, but there's just a grace for people to follow them. And in them, we learn to follow Jesus, right? We see the grace uh, manifesting in someone and we follow them. And then mercy. Mercy, you can tell who has this gift. Uh, They often have a bent or concern for justice. They hate it when people are treated unfairly. They will often be a voice for people on the margins. They often have compassion for people that nobody else does. They are the ones in the family that make sure there is still room at the table for the person who is weaker or forgotten to get a seat, right? And can I tell you something about this gift? We think of that word mercy as like um, only like meek or something, and it can manifest that way. It's beautiful. It does. There's a tenderness in mercy to include people who are suffering. Um, But many of the people I know who have the gift of mercy are fierce in their defense of people who don't have a voice, Um, and they will be the ones to speak up. I love this gift in the church. Uh, In my role over the years, they have been the ones who have helped me not to forget certain groups of people, right, to make sure that we're seeing certain groups of people, to say, hey, we're all having a good time, and we all pulled our chairs up to this table, but actually some people didn't get a seat. It's the mercy people who will always be pointing that out, right? And they're the ones at the end of dinner are sitting there with the most needy person at the table, listening to them the longest. It's amazing, just listening to them 
and making sure you know, that we haven't forgotten them. Friends, do you see each other in these gifts? And, and maybe what I really want to ask you today is, can you see yourself in these gifts? As a matter of fact, as I close here, this is just kind of my final question, and I want to say something about weakness. How do we know what gift we have? How do we discover it? You're in the family. You have some kind of grace. How do we discover it? Here, here's the best advice I can give you. I mean, aside from show up at the training in a couple weeks, because that will be really helpful. But here's, here's my best piece of advice I can give you. Do something in community. What I mean is sign up to serve. You want to know if you have the gift of service or what gift you have? Sign up for the service project on Saturday and see where you feel the grace of Jesus. How, how, how do you know the grace of, of Jesus is working? Well, sometimes it's because there's effectiveness, but very often it's because there's joy in the place where grace is manifesting in you. Serve, sing, get involved in the network, uh, pick up the phone, figure out uh, how to check in on someone. Just do the thing that's in front of you, and you will quickly find that some things you are not very good at, and they do not bring you joy, and that's okay because you're part of a family. Thank God that the grace of Jesus wasn't just left to you because you're not the whole package. But he did put you in a family, right, where you have a role to play. And this is really where I want to close today. I just find, I already said it, I find it really interesting that uh, Paul and Peter talk about the gifts in letters where the context is the boasting and the strength and the, uh, the swagger of empire, Why, in that context, do they think of these gifts? Well, it's because built into this concept of spiritual gifts in a family is the notion that we are weak and incomplete without each other. This is anti-empire. This is anti-Caesar. This is anti we got it all together, and I'm going to prove to you how great I am, and I'm going to show you my competence, and I'm going to, it's anti-boasting. Built into this idea of gifts is the notion that this family is made up of ordinary, weak people with limited resources and abilities, but somehow the grace of Jesus is manifesting in this family in an interdependent way. And we see Jesus, we see glimpses of Jesus in individuals, but in the whole, in the family. See, Caesar was like the embodiment of Rome. You look at him, you see the empire. Jesus is saying, now that he's ascended, we're waiting for his physical return. If you want to see Jesus on the earth today, there is no Caesar to look at. There's just a family. And together, the whole brings us the picture of Jesus. And I say do something in community because one of the ways that we serve each other is by pointing out each other's gifts. You can help each other discover each other's gifts. You know how if you see someone serving and doing it with grace, tell them that you see Jesus manifesting in their service. If you see, I ended up leading, that's one of my spiritual gifts, I ended up leading before I ever had position or anything like that because there were people, many times older saints, who put their hand on me and said, we see a gift of leadership in you. Do that 
to developing leaders in our church. Do that to young people in our church. They will not forget it. Um, if you see generosity manifesting someone, tell them, that's the, I see the generosity of God in your life. That's your gift. I see that that's Jesus. Point out to each other the grace that we see, um, where we see Jesus in, in each other's lives. You have a role to play. One thing we hope, and it's something I hope you're seeing in the multiplication, by multiplying and in a sense becoming weaker and smaller, we are communicating something that is not just in the transcendence of the crowd that Jesus shows up. It's in a family. And, and our staff, I want you to know, in the, our pastoral staff in the last two weeks, you know what we've been reflecting on because we always debrief Sunday? We've been debriefing how both at Franklin Avenue and here, we have seen people manifest gifts in the Sunday morning gathering that we have never seen step up to the plate in this gathering. They might have done it in other places, but they never did it in this gathering. You know why? Because when we're stacked deep in leaders and there's a crowd, it's easy to think they got it. Well, now, both at Franklin Avenue and here, you should know we don't. We need you to manifest these gifts. If you have a service gift, just to talk about Sunday mornings for a second, and you know me, Sunday morning to me is not like the sum and be all of the church. But let's just talk about Sunday mornings for a second. If we're going to pull this off, we need people with service gifts who will help us straighten chairs and set up coffee. Our staff can't handle it now. We're split into two different kinds of places. That everybody gets to play card with the fingers saying peace. That's a way for you to discover what it is that God has created you to do. So do something in community. Affirm, affirm to each other each other's gifts and let that be the picture. Not a highly qualified, uh, elitist group of performers. That, that can't be what the church is about. It has to be about time and time again when we get together. It has to be about ordinary, weak people. We must never make this about Caesar, big or little. It's the family that points to Jesus. Jesus.